0: If you have a a Bible, a copy of God's Word with you this morning, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, and let's consider the last few paragraphs of this section of God's Word. I'm going to read it for us and ask the Lord uh, to help us know, uh, but also help us to be sure of these things. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we were all being killed All the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me one more time. Father, I ask, as Paul said, we know this and we are sure of this, that You, God, would help us to know this and be assured of this this morning. Whether that be us who call ourselves Christians, who need to be reminded of what we know to be true so that we will be sure, or whether it be someone who is gathered together with us this morning who does not know you as their Father, who does not know Christ as their Savior, that they would know what you do for your children in salvation. And that they would be assured that nothing that they do could separate them from your love. So God, save. And God, sanctify. To the point that we are all glorified with you in heaven. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 8 in this series, uh, from faith for faith, in the book of Romans, we uh, have got to uh, at least one of the climaxes of the book of Romans. This has got to be a point where Paul is writing that he um, is trying to get out so many good truths out there that just build one upon the other that... Um, He just can't contain himself. Um, So much so that he breaks out in rhetorical question at the end, um, begging anybody to bring any answer that would uh, say something different than what he has already said to be true. Uh, And while he asked these rhetorical questions, um, and in his day he guessed that some of the answers that may have been thrown at him we find ourselves in a moment of time that I don't think is all too different from Paul's uh, day and time, in that uh, the idea of a prosperity gospel, uh, a gospel that says if you believe this, then good things will come. Uh, this is an idea. This is a a false good news that is being proclaimed not only here uh, in our area of the world, but around the world. One that is saying to people, you come to Christ and your life will change. Everything will be different. Your, your bank account will increase. Your health will radically change. Your, your, your job will now be satisfactory. Your family will be Uh, you know, the most loving family that anyone has ever seen. There will be no problems that you will experience. And you might think in your mind, Christian, we are like, well, I I know. I know of the prosperity gospel. I I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. I I know better than that. And yet, uh, how quick, how often do many of us as Christians from time to time, week to week, day to day, fall into sin and immediately doubt that the Lord loves us. And we we actually hold to a karma like Christianity that God loves us because we're lovable. That God will love us more if we're more lovable to him. And that's not true. It's not true according to this passage. It's not true according to the whole Bible, but it's that idea that then transfers into this prosperity gospel type idea that is running rampant in our world. And this passage is going to show us that God is more loving than you could ever imagine in that He loved you when you were unlovable and showed you His love by sending His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And he'll continue to love you, child of God, uh, until he has perfected his work in you. This passage is, is encouraging for us as Christians, and I hope it is attractive to those of you who have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, so much so that you would do so today. And if I could summarize what this passage is going to teach us this morning, it's this that since Christ died, rose again, and reigns, we can know and be sure that God will save us and that nothing will separate us. Since Christ died, rose, and reigns, we know and can be sure that God will save us and nothing will separate us. If you're taking notes this morning, I'd love for you to write these things down under the title of If God is for Us. I want you to note this first in verses 28 through 30. And that is that as God's children, that part's important, as God's children, we know God works all things to save us. We know as God's children that God works all things to save us. Romans 8.28 has got to be, it's got to be, one of the most misused verses in all of the Bible. Let me read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Oh, Brother, sister, please, when we are done with our text this morning, please do not use this out of context and say to a brother or sister who are suffering and experiencing hardship in the life to say, hey, don't, don't worry, God is going to work that for good and tomorrow will be different. Next week will be better. Next year, you can't even imagine. That may not be true. It hasn't been true for Christians throughout all of history. It's not true for some Christians uh, around the world. So let that not be true. Let's make sure we know what Paul is is saying in these verses, especially in the the context of all of Romans 8, but also in the, the context of the entire book of Romans. He says, And we know. We know. Not everyone knows, but we know. There's a special group of people here that that Paul is talking about. He included himself into this group uh, back in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. He would go on to say that we are sons, that we are children of God. Just before verse 28, he said that we were saints, called according to his Purpose. Paul is talking about a specific group of people here. Everyone doesn't know this, but we know this, and the we is children of God. That's why I put that category there, just before that that, that subpoint there. That as children of God, we know that God works all things to save us. Paul, with the saints in Rome, he says, we know that for those who love God, let me just say the we, specifically meaning saints, is um, shown us in two other phrases in this one verse. Not only does the we go backwards and show us who he's talking about, but he says, for those who love God. And we know from the rest of the Bible that those who love God are those who have Previously been loved by God. No one loves God apart from God loving them first. We love because He first loved us. And so, this is whatever Paul is saying, it's true for the we, it's true for those who love God, and it's also true, second part of verse 28, for those who are called according to His purpose. So the we are those who love God. The we are those who have been called according to His purpose. And what is it that the we know? They know um, that all things work together for good. A couple things. All things. Uh, all things, good, bad, or ugly, God will work together for our good. And we can't just say that it's the good things that God will work together for our good because Paul has not been talking about good things. The previous section, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, was about the groanings of all creation. Not only the groanings of all creation, but the, the increased groanings of God's children who are longing for and waiting for adoption as God's children. That there are groanings. And if that doesn't convince you, just wait a few verses until we get to what's following or remember what I read for you earlier. There's not much good circumstances that are being described by Paul. And yet Paul says, all, God will use all things. God will... Take all things and work them together for our good. Even the bad things, even the sufferings, even your sickness, even your sin. God can take sinful man and turn them for our good. That's what only the Lord could do. Jesus showed this even in his earthly life. When he, when he would touch sinful man, touch sick humanity, touch uh, dead humanity, and rather than the, the sinfulness and the, the uncleanness come upon himself, he would make that clean and he himself stay clean. Uh, this is what God does. And he works all things together for the good. Now, again, that good cannot be our definition of good. It has to be His definition of good. Because our definition of good is transient. It changes. It's temporary. It's uh, one thing for me, something different for you. One thing for this generation, another thing for the next generation. But what Paul is saying here is saying that even if you continue to suffer in your sickness, even if your situation doesn't change, even if you don't have your definition of good produced for you, trust, know that God is still working all things together for the good. The good according to His definition. And it's a good that is eternal. A uh, uh, Not a temporal good, but an eternal good. Not a physical good, but a spiritual good. This has to be the case uh, for the fact that many, many people's situations have not changed though they knew who the Lord was. They suffered, they persecuted, were persecuted. They were martyred even for their faith. Their situation was not changed. And yet, God worked them together for the good of those who love Him. Obviously, those are God's children. And He bases it, bases the, hit that idea on verse 28 and 30. You see the word for there explaining and giving reason to uh, the reality and the truth of what He just said. He says for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified." This has been called by some the golden chain of salvation." Uh, golden, unbreakable links in God's chain, successive chain of salvation. And we see the excuse me, we see the five different steps that Paul puts forward here, and it starts with this foreknowledge. And each one leads to the other. And, and they have to. Because each one is followed by. And those whom He did that to, He also did this to. So what's true um, of the last must have been declared to be and made to be true of the first. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Now I know. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, those are some big words. Those are some scary words. What, what does Paul actually mean by that? Well, let's talk about it. Let's consider what Paul is trying to uh, remind us of. He, he actually is saying, we know this to be true. How do they know this to be true if Paul hadn't written it already? Because this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Go back to Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph suffered immensely and was able to say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and turned it for good. Even from the same book, the same prophet that Graham read for us this morning, another verse taken out of context in in Jeremiah, where God says, you know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not harm you. It's those types of words. It's that type of um, knowledge, foreknowledge that has been um, declared throughout the entire Bible. And Paul is just recalling them to remember what they know from the Old Testament because the New Testament was literally being written at this moment. And so he reminds them of what they know. And that is that uh, for those whom he foreknew that there is an assumption that God foreknew certain people. Now, yes. Come on. Big view of God here in this church. Uh, God foreknew everyone, right? Uh, in, In one sense, He foreknew and foreknows everything and everyone. But that can't be what He's talking about here. Even though He does foreknow everyone and everything. That can't be what He's talking about here because that specific group that He foreknew, He also predestined, and He also called, and He also justified, and He also glorified. So this group that He foreknew is a specific group. It's a specific group of people whom He knew in a special way before the foundation of the world. Before He said, let there be light, He knew. He knew. He had a knowledge of them. Not just a mental knowledge of them, but a special knowledge of them. A special relationship with them. And in that group that He foreknew before the foundation of the world, He also predestined He destined them before it actually happened for something to happen. And what was that? He predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He destined, He predestined Destined those whom he foreknew to be sons, to be children. This is one of the amazing things, and this is not new. Again, God in the Old Testament chose Abraham among all the people of the world to display his glory, to save, to show his specific love to. He chose Abraham to become a people whom he might specifically um, relate to specially and show his love to in that way. And and it's amazing what uh, he predestines them to, to be conformed to the image of his Son uh, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I think what Paul is getting at here as well not only because of the, the context of what we're seeing in Romans chapter 8 of the groaning and the sufferings and the, the suffering and the persecution that's to come afterwards, but let us consider the, the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His time here on the earth. Was it not a life of suffering? Was it not, in fact, His suffering that brought about our adoption as sons. And if God foreknew us to be sons and predestined us to be sons and to be conformed into the image of his son, why would we think that it would be anything else than the suffering that Christ himself, the very son of God, experienced himself? Why do we think that we would get to experience something better than Christ himself? experienced. Jesus himself said to those who would follow him to take up their cross and to deny themselves and to follow him. We have have to realize that as children of God, God's desire is that we look like his firstborn and only son. That we would look like Christ. And the only way that we're going to look like Christ is if we suffer like Christ. Because we'll then have to trust the Lord like Christ did. And we'll be depending upon his strength and not our own strength in those moments. But this then is just the second link of that golden chain of salvation in, in these verses. He foreknew a group, and that same group he predestined, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Um Hinting at even that Jesus, who was the firstborn from the dead, that we too, as God's children, though we die, might live again with resurrected bodies like Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Now this calling has got to be special as well. Now as a pastor, as a preacher, And you, as a Christian, the New Testament makes makes it abundantly clear that we're to call all people to repent and believe in Christ. Uh, That, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to not assume your your repentance and faith or another's repentance and faith, and yet to call all who are gathering here today and to call anyone who would give me a moment of time to to share the gospel with them, to invite them to repent and believe. It's, it's our job to call all. This is why we pray for the nations every single Sunday. This is why we pray uh, for other churches to, to do the same, to call all people. This is why, as James read in Revelation chapter 7, there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. And it's our job as Christians to make disciples of all nations in word, in talk, in deed, in giving, in serving, in going. That's our job. But this call is different from that call. We'll we'll get to our responsibility to call people to repent and believe in chapter 10. This is God's call. And it is effective. Because those whom He calls he justifies. There is no one that God effectually calls that is not justified and saved. When God foreknows and predestines and calls, he will justify them. And so when Paul is writing of this this um, growing building blocks on top of one another, this this order of salvation, if you will. He's saying that those whom he predestined, he also called. That God has a effectual call on individuals' lives. That all are called by the gospel to repent and believe, but that there are some who he specifically calls Jesus makes this clear in John chapter 6, a great passage that describes this idea uh, and says that all who come to me have first been drawn by the Father. C.S. Lewis would talk about how though he called out to the Lord, he realized first that God had been calling out to him. And so, yes, We call out to the Lord. We repent and believe. But it is the Lord who calls. And not only that, but those whom He called, He also justified. Paul's spoken much already about justification. And so we don't need to belabor that point. We can just go back and read some of what we have read earlier in the book of Romans. But justified, nevertheless, means to be declared righteous before God. And everyone God calls effectually, He declares righteous before Himself because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the substitutionary atonement that happened on the cross. Everyone God calls, He justifies before Himself. He declares them righteous. And that would be enough. But remember, This is true of those who are God's children. He went above justification. And we could add to that, uh, Paul chose not to, but we could add uh, above that those that he adopted and those whom he sanctified and those whom are persevering. But he assumes all of those realities in between justification and goes straight to the very final stage and says those whom he justifies... He also glorified. Now, let's just think about the order of these things foreknowledge, past. Predestined, what you think? Past. Uh, Called, well, for those of us at least now, past. Justified, when does that happen? At the moment, we've been regenerated and converted to Christ in the past. Glorified. Future, right? That is yet to happen for those of us who are still alive on this earth, who have repented and believed in Christ. And yet, Paul says, it's as sure as if it was in the past already accomplished. He puts it in the past tense. He says, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's as sure as if it already happened because this chain will not be broken. If you've been called by God to repentance and faith and have followed thus, have been justified by God and given His Spirit as a seal and a guarantee of that, you can know beyond a shadow of doubt That you will also be glorified. That God will finish the work that he began in you. This is what the author of Hebrews wrote wrote about Jesus. He who began a good work will finish it to its completion. Him the author and perfecter of our faith. And so God, through the Apostle Paul, is helping us to know something. The Romans needed to know what they knew from their Old Testament Scriptures. We have the blessing and privilege of not only having the Old Testament, but also the New Testament that includes the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the firstborn from the dead, that all of these things are as good as done for those of us who have been foreknown and predestined and called and justified, we too know that we will also be glorified. If you're a child of God, know that this morning. Rest in that this morning. Rest in it tomorrow when you're groaning because all creation is groaning. Rest in that later this year when you face some sort of persecution for calling yourself a Christian or for acting in Christian principle. Remember this. He who began this work will also finish this work in you. We will also be glorified in Him. And yet... Though we see God's sovereign hand over salvation so clearly in this passage, this does not negate our responsibility. It does not negate uh, our part in this. John Stott said it this way The Bible's emphasis on God's sovereignty never diminishes our responsibility. Which is why we, as God's children, are called effectually to repent and believe. And if you've yet to repent and believe, you do not have this knowledge and assurance of your salvation. And yet the Lord is, I hope, using me and using our church to draw you to himself, to call you to Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone makes these things true. It's our responsibility, not only to repent and believe ourselves, but to call others to repent and believe. God has chosen, sovereign over all these things, but He's also chosen to use us. Just as He used His one and only Son, He chooses to use His adopted sons and daughters to bring this about in the lives of others. So we need to remember that. But secondly, not only do we know that God will work all things together to save us, we are also sure. We are sure that nothing in all creation can separate us. If God is the One who saved us, we can't do anything to separate us. If we didn't do anything to save ourselves, why do we think we could do anything to unsave ourselves? And if God has overcome even death, why do we think that anything less than that would be able to separate us from the love of God? This is important, especially for the Romans who are reading it, because just years and decades away, Christians will be lighted on fire on poles to light the parties of the upper class. The sufferings and the persecutions that Paul has already experienced himself and will continue to experience after he writes this he knows that this is the reality, the likely reality for the Roman Christians in the first century, and likely the, um, the reality for most Christians throughout most of the history of the world. We happen to live in a, a small part of humanity in a small season of time when Christianity has been looked upon favorably, but don't think that will last for, forever. Don't think that's true around the rest of the world. These words are helpful reminders, especially for those around the world who are experiencing this type of suffering and those of us who will live long enough. It's not a matter of will we, but live long enough to experience this type of suffering that's coming. We are sure, as God's children, that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us. He proves this by asking rhetorical questions that have no good answers. Your teachers might tell you opposite kids, that there's no bad answers, and Paul is actually saying the opposite. There's plenty. There's no good good answers to this. Uh, There's only bad answers to this. What then shall we say to these things? Which things? These things of this this sovereign salvation that the Lord is accomplishing. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's just compare, he says. Earlier he said, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. If our God, whom he just described, that foreknows, predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies, is for us, who is there that is even worth bringing up to compare with him? Who could be against us that the Lord couldn't overcome? and show His power over. He, he explains it this way. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If this God who is for us gave up the most priceless treasure that he had, his very own son. Why do we in a moment of suffering or in a moment of um, temptation or even in a moment after sin doubt that the Lord would give us all good things, all things to help us continue in our salvation, to grow in our sanctification? Why do we doubt that? Why do we doubt that the Lord doesn't have in store for us? Again, going back to His definition of good, not our definition, but has everything in store to be able to give give us whatever we need for the good. And He'll do it graciously. Even though we don't deserve it, He'll still give it. Even though we haven't earned it, He still is ready to gift it to us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? On this earth, there's plenty of charges brought against you as a Christian. Plenty of charges brought against you as just a human, as an individual. Who's to bring any charge against God's elect? There's been a lot of God's elect who have been charged before rulers and authorities and condemned wrongly. Paul's not talking, though, about an earthly court. He's not saying that there won't be people who won't condemn you here on this earth. He's not saying that there won't be people who won't bring charges against you on this earth. He's not saying that there won't be people that won't accuse you on this earth, he's saying, there is no one in heaven or on earth that will ever be able to condemn you in the court of heaven. When you stand before God, there will be no one who will rise from their seat to accuse you of doing something wrong here on, the, on this earth. Why? Because it's been paid. It's been accomplished. Christ Jesus died for everything that we could have been accused for. Everything that we could have been and should be condemned for. But you remember how Paul started Romans chapter 8? If you're memorizing it, say it with me in your mind. There is therefore now no condemnation. And Paul says back there, now there's no condemnation. And Paul is saying here, then there won't be any condemnation. This is good news. This is encouraging. This gives us assurance in in our hearts and in our minds when we're so prone to doubt and worry. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. Remember, he already mentioned that word in that golden Chain of salvation. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Paul says, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This is where I get that part of the original sentence I gave you earlier that since Christ died but not just died he rose but he didn't just rise he ascended since Christ died since he rose since he ascended we know that God will save us and we have assurance that nothing can separate us now if Jesus were died on the cross and were still in the tomb we would not have solid knowledge of these things, would we? If his disciples and more than 500 others didn't see Jesus resurrected from the grave that he was buried in, um, if they didn't see him ascend into the heavens and hear the angels say, what are you looking at? He's going to come back. Didn't he already tell you this? If those things hadn't happened, then we wouldn't have this assurance. But Paul is basing his knowledge and his assurance on the fact that Christ did die. On the fact that Christ had been raised. On the fact that Christ had ascended. Paul himself was a witness to it. He who was condemning. He who was accusing, he who was causing suffering, he who was persecuting, was on the road to Damascus to do more of that. And the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior came down from heaven to reveal himself to Paul. Paul has great confidence in these things, and he's passing them on to the church in Rome who will experience the same sufferings that he's experienced on his missionary journeys, the same sufferings he will experience in Rome himself. And we have this assurance that Jesus who ascended to the right hand of God is interceding for us. He is mediating on our behalf before God the Father. He is pleading our case daily before the Father. Not only is the Spirit interceding to the Father for you when you don't have words, Christ Himself as mediator is interceding before the Father when uh, people of this earth might accuse you, when Satan himself might accuse you, when your own heart might accuse you and condemn you. Christ Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Praying that you would know these things to be true, that you would have the assurance that these things are true. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins a list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He could go on, and he will go on in a bit, but he stops short there, and he quotes from his Bible in Psalm chapter 44, verse 22. He quotes a, a song, one verse of an entire psalm, bringing uh, reference to mind of the entire psalm itself. A psalm in which the psalmist on behalf of Israel says, why are we suffering God? And maybe I could interject and say that the psalmist probably thought, yeah, there were times when we denied You and we didn't follow You and we didn't walk by faith, but this is not one of them, Lord, in Psalm 44. The psalmist says, we haven't done anything wrong. We haven't turned from You. In fact, we've been following You faithfully and we're still being persecuted. Yet, Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet, for your sake, emphatically, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We've got to go back to what we learned in verse 28. That we know that for those who love God, tribulation... Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword will work together for good for those who love Christ Jesus. We have this assurance. God is using these things for His sake, for His glory, for our good, and for others' salvation. Which is why he summarizes in verse 37. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're not just going to squeak by in these things here on this earth. When we get to heaven, we will receive the victor's crown. And we'll see that we are more than conquerors in these things because of Christ Jesus who first conquered all sin and all death and began the reverse of the curse. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's where I get the language from our second point. For I am sure Paul writes in the perfect tense. That word, I am sure. uh, A verb whose action continues to have effect on and on and on and on throughout all of these situations. Can you say this? Can you say that you are sure now and forevermore that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present today, nor things to come tomorrow, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation just in case I left something out, Paul says. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have this assurance. We have this hope. We have this this knowledge of who God is and what He has done in Christ. And it ought to be an encouragement to us. Christian, don't believe what you see on Facebook or YouTube from that successful pastor that's got way more views than your pastor don't believe when they tell you that one gift or more giving or more faithfulness or more trust or more obedience will change the circumstances of your life god's using even the worst of your life for the good making you more and more like his son Jesus. Not one bit of your life, as bad as it is, or as evil it is, as it is, will not be used by God for your good. Every single bit of your life will be used by God to make you more and more into Jesus, into the image of Christ, if you'll let it if you'll let it, if you'll let the Lord strengthen you to persevere, if you'll let the Lord enable you to walk in faithful obedience to Him, if you'll trust the Lord in those moments, He'll continue to use them for your good. He he might even have to overcome your lack of faith, your lack of obedience to get your attention in the midst of them. But we have this knowledge, we have this assurance as children of God. But if you don't have that knowledge, if you don't have that assurance that if you were to die today and stand in the courtroom of heaven, that there would be no one to accuse you, no one to condemn you, if you don't have that assurance, it's likely because you've yet to repent and believe in Jesus Christ you've yet to answer the call to follow Jesus we can all doubt we can all struggle but we know we those of us who are Christians know what it's like to doubt and to struggle and yet still have the assurance of the holy spirit in our life but if you don't have that assurance, if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt to be able to, like Paul, say, for I am sure that nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you can't say that, these passage passages above probably any others are begging you to repent and believe so that that assurance can be yours. Christ Jesus did not die And rise from the dead and ascend to heaven for you to wonder. For you to go through this life unsure. He wants you to have great confidence in this life and in the next. And so if you lack that assurance but want that assurance this morning, if you sense the Lord drawing near to you and drawing you near to him, why wouldn't you? Along with the Apostle Paul, along with many of us here, answer his effectual call, knowing that he foreknew, he predestined you, he's calling you. And by answering that call, you will be justified. And one day you will be glorified to look more like Jesus than you ever could imagine here on this earth, to spend eternity with him, That's what is available. And so I make my call to all to repent and believe and pray that the Lord will make His effectual call um, to those whom He has foreknown. And let us, whom He has foreknown, whom He has predestined, whom He has called, whom He has justified, whom He has past tense, but also future tense, will glorify let us walk in this knowledge this week. Believe the true gospel, not a false gospel. Walk in assurance this week, not knowing what may come in the future, whether it be sickness or trial, persecution, tribulation, whatever may come, we walk in assurance. Let's pray. Father, help us. We know that You will because you've given all, have repented and believed, your very Spirit to help us in these things. Christ Jesus, thank you for willingly giving up your life so that we might be able to enjoy life here on this earth knowing that we've been reconciled to God And have the opportunity to be reconciled to one another. And also know that one day we will be united with you forever in in heaven. Jesus, I thank you for your finished work on the cross. Your accomplished work of salvation and your resurrection and your, your present reign next to the right hand of the Father. That gives us great confidence knowing that we did not save ourselves. We cannot unsave ourselves. And that nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh God, I pray you would give confidence to those who lack it. A confidence that has not been unavailable to them. but that they have been made aware of by Your Spirit through Your Word because of Christ. God, I pray that You would give us an assurance to be able to persevere through the hardest and darkest of times. And even if we ourselves don't experience that, we have brothers and sisters who are even members of this congregation who are putting themselves Willingly laying down their lives to suffer, to face tribulation, to make this gospel known to others. Might we suffer well with them? Might we join arms with them? Might we walk through that with them? And not only members who are taking the gospel to other nations, but We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering in this very way as we've described. Father, may we be more prayerful. May we be more generous and gracious like You who gave us Your one and only Son and all things to work together for the good. May we be generous and gracious and sacrificial to give of what You've given to us to help and encourage others. God, I pray that you would strengthen us as a church knowing that when one of us wavers, when one of us doubts, when one of us is unsure, we're all weakened by that. So God, let us help one another in accordance with the word With the help of your Holy Spirit, may we as your church shine brightly in the knowledge and surety of our salvation because of who you are and what you've done uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.